Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Garima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Alexi White. We have got a great pod for you today. We're going to be talking about the government's end to streaming and return to school plans. We're going to be talking about another extension to the COVID emergency legislation and the COVID recovery bill that the Ford government just introduced. And also, I want to touch on something that we haven't talked about in a while and it wasn't on a lot of people's radars, an auditor report on the true cost of a regular border crossing. But before all that, our season is ending soon and we will be going on break for August and probably early September. But before we go, we want to tackle some listener questions. So if you have any questions at all on your mind related to policy, politics, maybe sort of personal, but not so personal to be uncomfortable stuff, we will filter those. Uh, dogs, cooking, anything you want, uh, send them to us. You can send them to OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or just get at us on Twitter. Honestly, if I'm looking at the options that I just laid out, you're probably getting the most bang for your buck on public policy. But yeah, ask us your questions. Also, if you haven't heard yet, this week's deep dive on civil society organizations with Stephanie Prosek and Anjum Sultana from United Way and YWCA, respectively, was fantastic. Listen to it after this if you haven't already. Uh, Friends, how is everyone this week? Good. Surviving. (laughs) Not that hot here. I don't know. You guys can blame that. Oh, I am Alexi. I live in British Columbia, surrounded by beautiful mountains. That's this is what I hear when you in all of our introductions. Well, we have a lot to get through today, so uh, maybe we'll just dive right in. Our main story today: uh, it has been a big, big week in the education world. Uh, Minister Stephen Lecce announced via an exclusive interview with the Toronto Star that the ministry would be moving to end streaming between academic and applied courses in grade nine, beginning with math in 2020 and 2021. The minister announced the policy change as a response to criticism that streaming is a fundamentally discriminatory practice. In the Toronto District School Board, uh, which collects race-based data, one analysis found that 47% of Black students took applied level courses compared to just 20% of non-Black students. Uh, as many are familiar, the applied stream does not allow you to advance to uh, university-level post-secondary education. In the Peel Board, an investigator's report found that Black students are disproportionately streamed into applied-level courses, and guidance counselors in many cases reinforced this decision for students, including one Black student appearing in the report who had an A average who was encouraged to take applied-level courses that, again, will not take you to university. The province also announced other measures to curb anti-Black racism in schools, including ending suspensions from junior kindergarten to grade three, something which Black and Indigenous students are also overrepresented in the enforcement of. And notably, uh, there have been a lot of folks advocating for an end to streaming for many years, and the TDSB had already been taking steps towards it. For many years, people for education urged uh, the Liberal government to end the practice. So this is big big news, uh, a lot of folks pushing for it for a long time, but it's also a big change for the sector. So curious just to maybe get right in with reactions. What are, and when we're thinking about a change this big, what are some of the things we need to pay attention to barriers? And maybe from our time in government, like I was sort of thinking, you know, this is something that the Ford government is doing. What were the, some of the barriers that we might've seen? Yeah, I think maybe I'll start there. It's a really big change. I think that uh, Minister Lecce deserves credit for moving forward on this. Um, I think I wasn't really expecting it, to be honest. And so this was a long time coming. Community groups had been organizing for a really long time, largely in the Black community, but not exclusively. And there's 
stiff opposition to this from some of the teachers unions and uh, some of the school boards. And so the liberals under Mitzi Hunter sort of put in the window that they wanted to move forward with this, but never got it done uh, back in 2017. And so, yeah, like I said, I think kudos to uh, to Minister Lecce for moving forward on this. More details have come out that it's only going to start with math um, starting in 2021, which will not really solve the problem because um, it's really English and math that are the key kind of ladders to academic and then university level courses. And so uh, by not de-streaming English, at least, it's not really going to solve the problem, but maybe it's a place to start. And I think it's overall good. I think the way it was announced was kind of bizarre. And I've seen a lot of speculation that it was put out to try to die down the hashtag fire leche that was kind of taking over Twitter um, for for most of the last week. Um, yeah, who knows if that's true or not, but um, uh, it was a bit weird for him to give it to the Toronto Star and then there not be an announcement for several more days uh, to follow. Um, and I think how it gets implemented, the supports that are needed in terms of training, in terms of class size, in terms of special education. Um, I have a lot of questions and and not a ton of faith that they are going to get this right. But I mean, there's time for that if it's not until 2021. So overall, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm also very happy with it. I think it's great. I think, Sam, it's probably worth digging slightly further into what you mentioned about why there is some opposition, because it can strike a lot of people given the evidence for this uh, being detrimental to a lot of uh, kids, like why would anyone oppose getting rid of streaming? Um, and I don't know that that narrative uh, is really getting out there, but it's certainly heard behind the scenes in the, in the advocacy uh, to the Ministry of Education. So uh, my understanding uh, is that most of it has to do with the fact that um, if you think about it, the, the more you divide courses up uh, into different streams, um, the more you have to hire additional teachers in order to teach, you know, one academic math class, one applied math class, because there are caps on the number of students or averages, at least um, there are more jobs as a result of streaming uh, because you compartmentalize students into more smaller uh, rooms, basically. Um, Sam, to what extent would you say that's is, is does that miss anything else that was a big piece of why there was some opposition to this? No, I think that's right. I think it's, you know, general concern that differentiated instruction is hard to do. And so you kind of lower all the standards to, you know, accommodate a spectrum of abilities. I think there's lots of, frankly, racism and um, ableism underneath those attitudes, but I, those attitudes are real. And I think um, the fact that not everyone is moving to academic, like they're not so they're releasing a new foundational course in grade nine that is neither academic nor applied. Well, I think feed into those those conversations that you know you're lowering standards for everybody, uh, not supporting people to rise to the academic standards, um, which is what TDSB had done. They just stopped offering applied in lots of high schools. Um, so I think I think there's a real risk of of blowback uh, from both teachers but also parents and that's exactly why the ministry needs to get this implementation right get the supports right get the community engagement right so that it's not a repeat of 95 because this was done de-streaming was tried already in 1995 by the then ndp government uh, implementation was a disaster and then the conservatives kind of undid it when they rolled out academic and applied so there's a long history to this and i hope that we're not kind of repeating these same mistakes. I think that those are all really 
excellent points and I'm not necess- I'm not an education policy expert, but I do think that it's important and perhaps we just inherently think about it, but to sort of flesh out the longer term impacts that's something that this policy change, if implemented well, can have in terms of the future educational and labor market impacts for for students that are just either because of racism, ableism, or classism sort of streamed into applied classes right now, which dictates their entire future. And if we, you know, the labor market has been going under, has been undergoing some significant shifts for some decades now, but post-COVID, there's a lot of speculation that that change is going to be accelerated. And so while the implementation needs to be um, needs to be very successful and well thought out, um, I do think that it's it's worth mentioning that the success in this is not just that all students get the get the same level of instruction, but really the fruits of this will be seen in the future when we start to see a labor market or when we start to see people not being sorted into different types of jobs in the labor market based on what they were streamed into in grade nine. And so I think that's just something important to to keep in mind. Oh, totally. And I, I think that like one thing we saw was a lot of people applauding this policy decision, but taking exception to the manner in which it was announced. So I want to uh, switch to that um, for just a moment, and uh, Sam, pick up on something you said earlier about how boards and educators reacted to the announcement. It was in the Toronto Star. There wasn't an actual piece of documentation from the ministry clarifying what that meant for uh, some time. And so with boards and educators already adapting to COVID, we've seen a lot of criticism coming out that the government doesn't really have a concrete plan to launch school in September right now. Um, Certainly not funding to support that plan. Uh, I think in this year's funding for school boards, 25 million was announced, but that, and, you know, piling this transformative change on top. Uh, Last week, we talked about the math curriculum. Just on Wednesday, it came to light that the province might be curtailing some of the board flexibility and adapting to the plan, saying that expects kids to be in class as much as possible. So if we take back from this particular piece and we look at just the level of change going through the sector at this time, how do we think the community of educators, people giving this to parents, students are feeling about the ministry and the minister's governance. Um, Is it working? And based on our experience, is it possible to marshal the kind of change they've announced in the time they have to do it? Uh, I think the short answer is no. Uh, There isn't a way to effectively uh, put this much change uh, in the window at the same time, particularly given the pandemic. And it's interesting because uh, I think what didn't come out publicly, but was heard very much behind the scenes in the liberal government, was a feeling in the sector that the government was pushing too far too fast on a whole bunch of different policy changes uh, in education. And the message coming back from stakeholders behind the scenes was very much uh, like, it's you know, these things are not bad individually, but like there is change fatigue. You guys want to do so much. Uh, and so I think that's just interesting context when you think about the things that the liberal government wasn't able to achieve in education. Um, it's, it's important to understand some of that, that pushback. But I just can't imagine how people are feeling now. I mean, if that was if that was the feeling a few years ago, things have just shifted into overdrive with this government. Uh, and I don't think they have any interest in listening to any of that kind of feedback or having any kind of um, collaboration to implement in an effective way, uh, often with some of these 
um, with these stakeholders that are so necessary. I mean, th this thing about education, like the province gets all the attention and provincial policy gets all the attention, but it's a whole bunch of uh, school boards that are their own fiefdoms. Uh, it's a whole bunch of classrooms where the teacher has a, a tremendous amount of local control. And a lot of education is, is coaxing, it's supporting, it's training, it's learning, it's uh, all of these difficult, slow change management processes. And it doesn't feel like this government uh, politically has, has uh, understood that. And I think that's going to hold back any real uh, change uh, for quite some time. I would echo everything Alexi just said. Uh, maybe just picking up on your point about the back to school and COVID planning in particular, I think it's kind of interesting watching them roll out math and streaming because individually, and the suspension stuff too, individually, I kind of like them all, but I then kind of look at the sector and think the only thing I'm hearing and seeing from parents right now is like deep anxiousness, anxiety about the back to school, the need for it to be five days a week to get the economy going. You even saw like bank CEOs weighing in on it this week. Uh, and, you know, bold ideas being put forward about like, you know, move high school to the evenings and then use the high school, like the high school classes to the evenings or weekends and, you know, let uh, the elementary kids take over high school classes or university campuses to, so they can spread out like, you know, big, bold ideas that require funding and planning and imagination that we should have started months ago. And then the ministry and minister not talking about any of that and talking about these other things. I just think probably in the public perception, it reads tone deaf to what people are actually worried about right now. Not that there's anything wrong with any of the individual pieces. I just think the politics over top of it are really uh, complex during this, you know, unprecedented pandemic. Yeah, no. And I, I, I think that like, there's a huge elephant in the room in this whole thing about childcare and the gender-based impacts of this recession, like, you know, the economic importance of kids being in school is something that is not costed in in any way, shape, or form in the ministry's current response to COVID. And they've, I don't see this government talking about childcare in a serious way. And, you know, both in the sector and outside the sector, I do wonder if there's a reason why that fire leche hashtag is such a problem because, you know, the perception of person who is both out of touch in the sector and outside the sector is uh, not great. So maybe moving on for a second in, uh, I want to turn to more COVID stuff, a quick COVID update. Uh, right now, the uncertainty about September aside, we were doing pretty well with the COVID recovery on, uh, on, a, on a health basis at the moment. Uh, we're around 120 new cases per day in Ontario compared with over 500 per day at the peak in April. Our R value uh, is below one, meaning that the disease is not growing rapidly across the province. Most cases uh, in most areas of the province, it's not growing uh, quickly at all and the case counts are extremely low. Uh, it's still a problem in urban centers like Toronto, Ottawa, Peel, Hamilton. Uh, however, Toronto recorded its first R value below one this week um, and a case rate that is still trending downward. So like real progress, um, just being a Torontonian and an Ontarian myself, um, you know, I'm walking around feeling a little bit better than I was before. And it might make sense then 
to why the government might be turning its attention towards next steps and switching up its strategy. So on Wednesday, they introduced legislation that will allow them to extend and amend uh, emergency orders into next year, but would end the formal state of emergency on July 24th. Um, our current state is extended until then. They're giving themselves power long term to adapt to the situation, but they're ending sort of the formal state of emergency. Um, this bill contains, however, a lot of other things too. Um, so I toyed around with calling this segment Boop Boop, Let's Climb on Board the Omnibus uh, until I realized that that joke has been made about a million times. But I want to go through just a few of the laws that will be amended in this conservative bill. The Building Code, the Drainage Act, the Environmental Assessment Act, the Farm Registration and Farm Organizations Funding Act, the Planning Act, the Municipal Affairs and Housing Act, the Occupational Health and Safety Act. There's a Red Tape Reduction Act that is being amended that actually takes two full whole sentences to read in its full, so I'll skip past it. Uh, the Education Act, uh, notably to implement the suspension ban that we talked about a little bit earlier, and that is not even half the list. Also not in this bill, but being proposed by the Ford government at this time is a measure that would allow landlords to evict tenants who had not paid rent during COVID. Um, again, not part of the omnibus bill, but part of the same thing. So this is right now, we're kind of in a situation where there is a cacophony of legislation coming through the House. Uh, we don't have time today on this pod to go through everything in this bill, but want some high-level thoughts on maybe what stands out here strategically about the government's approach and how do we think opposition parties uh, should react to it um, and whether, you know, uh, as you guys have absorbed all this news this week, anything jumped out to you? My, what, what I find interesting about this, uh, this specific omnibus move is that if you think about when in a political and in a policy context, an omnibus mill bill makes the most sense, it is something like a pandemic like this, where you have you, the, the idea of omni, an omnibus bill is that it is affecting a whole bunch of different legislation in a whole bunch of different sectors. And this pandemic is affecting a whole bunch of different sectors and a whole bunch of different things in our society. And so the concept of an omnibus bill to deal with COVID actually makes a lot of sense to me. And I think we need to be careful just generally to not associate omnibus legislation with always being bad and hiding things and not the way that proper democracies work, because I think there are times when it makes a lot of sense. And some of the things in this bill do in fact, uh, do in fact align with that idea. There are some changes, you know, the changes to the, the marriage act, for example, is some basic things to say, if you have forms that were going to expire because we've had to close a bunch of, you know, the offices, uh, we can, because of COVID, we, we're just going to extend the deadlines for that for an extra year. Um, so it's it's a lot of really, you know, small changes in some of these areas. Uh, you know, the City of Toronto Act and the Municipal uh, um, Act are uh, changes to enable the you know, proxy voting and people to meet electronically, like that kind of stuff. Like things that actually do make a lot of sense in this context, I think. The challenge comes that there are pieces of this omnibus bill, of course, where it does appear that the government is uh, pushing things that probably shouldn't be part of an omnibus bill about COVID uh, and that really do deserve more attention just from a democratic perspective from lawmakers. Uh, and not all of them are bad. And the changes to the Education Act, I think, uh, are probably good on uh, on balance, uh, but it's, it's just not the kind of way that you would want to see a government do this. So... Just sort of before, I think I've seen a lot of people react to this as, oh, it's Tories doing omnibus bills again. Uh, there is something to that. But I also think that this is a unique time and we just we just need to recognize that context. I feel like, sorry, you're being very charitable. You've just listed the three things that are COVID related. City of Toronto, 
miscible in the marriage act, which fair <laughs> enough, all needs to be changed. But then there's sweeping changes to a whole bunch of shit that has nothing to do with COVID. Yeah, no, for sure. But, but the, I, I guess, but it, the idea of an omnibus bill. Yes, uh, I agree with the as, as a principle. I just don't think they've lived up to the principle in this instance. Right. So the, the criticism needs to be about the content of the omnibus bill. Yes, not fair enough. Okay, we agree there. When I sort of tried reading the bill at a high level, it does tell me a little bit about what the conservatives strategy might be for COVID recovery at the very least in that like there's a ton of let's reduce red tape around development stuff in this bill like I think like let's make sure we make it easier to uh, develop property and that seems to be pretty in keeping with the conservative brand actually to the point where Minister Steve Clark had to come out and say that this did not mean they were going to touch the green belt and nothing in this would allow them to touch the green belt um, because there were questions about you know, what this came after that. I do agree that in principle, like you actually, this an omnibus bill makes a lot of sense here. But if this, if we're reading into what this tells us about what the conservatives sort of see as what their response should be, if this is the statement they're making, it's a lot of red tape reduction around development of property, um, which I think is something that we should have some concern about. And it's not a bunch of new money to, and that money might be coming. Like this might be tranche one. This might be just a particular vessel. So I don't want to presuppose um, to sort of maybe be half charitable to them. But I do think you see a, a political agenda that is that reads as quite conservative. Uh, not the least of which, which was a weird bit, is allowing directors of education in school boards to be non-teachers. Like that has nothing to do with COVID. Like it's not even the same neighborhood as COVID. I'm all for like maybe putting the suspension ban in somewhere, but. Uh, you know, like, you know, there's like, there's just a, a, a bunch of stuff here and it's, it's pretty dizzying, uh, particularly when you, there are other bills related to subways. And one thing I want to come back to this like tenancy bill that is, is going through right now. And Groom, I know you had some stuff you want to say about that. Yeah. I, you know, just to sort of go back to, you know, what's covered in this omnibus bill on the section 37, the community benefits charge stuff and on development charges. Like I think that the amendments to the bill bring to bear what this government has been working on for a long time. And there's been a, a lot of tension in the housing sector, in the housing sector with developers and the and the broader housing industry around how community benefit charges and development charges um, sort of shake out. And so I think there's that piece. And then there's also something really important on inclusionary zoning where, um, so inclusionary zoning is basically an assessment of a new, of a new development, housing development that sort of prescribes to the developer how many of the units being built need to be affordable units. So many people sort of think of the towers that are scattered across downtown Toronto and wonder why we don't have more affordable units. And and the desire to have more affordable units is called inclusionary zoning or what this bill does is it enables the minister to sort of have final say on where these inclusionary zoning units can or cannot be. And it sort of centralizes a really important, in my view, city building and and affordable housing process um, to the province when it it probably rests better in in the 
in the hands of municipal government. And so I feel like that there's a tension here between the philosophy that underpins what is happening on inclusionary zoning and on and on the philosophy that underlies other areas of this government's policy development or change, be it in health or in social assistance. So I'll just put that aside and that segues into now Bill 184 and the tensions around what uh, tenants face if Bill 184 is passed. And so there's been a lot of discussion in, in recent weeks around impacts of Bill 184. That includes creating a process by which a tenant who has filed a complaint uh, to the LTB against their landlord for having to put all of their grievances in their initial filing, as opposed to being able to sort of allow their case to grow as as more evidence is built. There's also concerns that this legislation will ease evictions uh, for landlords. So there's this tension, especially because we're butting up against it with COVID now and the lifting on the evictions moratorium. But a landlord who has a tenant who has not fulfilled the requirements of their uh, rent arrears eviction plan can automatically sort of uh, start the process of evictions and going through the the LTB process. So I think that, you know, taken together, there's a lot to be said about what the omnibus bill does in light of COVID, but also it does sort of cap off many policy ideas and legislative ideas that the government wanted to undertake anyways. Kind of a reminder, uh, this whole thing, you know, governments have a lot of tools at their disposal. And even if they amend, they back down on some of the stuff, they're going to get great swaths of their agenda uh, passed in this time, which I think is something to, you know, so, so, something to pay attention to and something to be, you know, keeping attuned to. Last but not least, I uh, want to dive into a stunning report by the Auditor General this week that found that uh, Lisa McLeod, then Minister of Children, Community and Social Services, was not correct when she announced that the province was spending $200 million a year on legacy listeners of the show will remember that when the Ford government was newly elected, they were a little bit more Trumpy than they seem to be today. And they picked a big fight with the federal government over the uh, this price tag, saying the federal government needed to pay Ontario for these border crossers. They actually used the word illegal border crossers at the time, uh, which I found gross. Uh, it turns out that this number was actually closer to $81 million and that $200 million is closer to the cost of all support for all new refugees, uh, who, by the way, we are obligated under international law to care for with temporary housing, settlement, education, language training, etc. Uh, perhaps most Damningly, Ontario only had 15 million of this cost uh, supported by the federal government. In contrast, Quebec, who had $300 million in irregular border crossing related costs, had $286 million of that, most of that covered by the federal government due to a negotiated agreement. So, you know, maybe something we could have explored if Ontario hadn't been, you know, so busy trying to uh, stir up the pot on this and yelling at the feds at the time. So, just curious um, for our reactions on this uh, auditor's report. Uh, this week, and if we can reflect on maybe perhaps this epilogue to uh, what might be one of Ontario's more shameful public discourses. So I was really, I mean, when this was going on last year, I was uh, quite incensed by it. And seeing the figures from the Auditor General now, it just, it kind of reinforced for me um, 
how a number of the issues that we're dealing with in the pandemic now, uh, we started to see, I mean, years ago, if not longer before then, but even with this issue on irregular border crossings, um, how populist sort of sentiments uh, fuel what governments do or don't do and sort of shape the narrative around who is uh, deserving of empathy and of and therefore public services and who is not. And I think about the debate at this time, and it was, I want to say, roughly this time last year, when um, the province also moved under, you know, kind of the guise of all of this happening, um, moved to cancel something called the transition child benefit, which is a child benefit provided to families without status who don't have access for whatever reason to the Canada child benefit and the Ontario child benefit. And so, um, so what the province was moving to do in trying to balance their books and in trying to ensure that um, in their mind that they were being fiscally prudent, that they were going to take away uh, benefits that helped support families of 32,000 children um, or almost 14% of families that receive social assistance. And so the value or the quantum of the TCB was typically about 20% of the income of a single parent with one child receiving Ontario Works. Um, but they, but something so drastic and in my mind draconian was going to be, uh, was justified because it was going to save the government $67 million. And so when you sort of put that up against what the total cost of, of um, this, increase in irregular border crossings last year was it just to me I just cannot I cannot fathom um, how off base the province was with this um, and how willing uh, the province was to sort of undermine um, the security of people that that desperately need our our support. Um, I will say that they did cancel um, the cancellation of this benefit um, after some public pressure. But it is it's important to keep in mind that this that this one policy issue or one narrative had multiple implications in different policy areas, including um, supports for the most marginalized. Yeah, I think that's a great rundown. And, and maybe I just will add, I think... It was always transparent that this was a federal election ploy that they were really doing on behalf of their federal counterparts um, to support Shear's narrative during the election. And I'm just really glad that that narrative didn't really work. But, uh, and this I think is, you know, more illustration of uh, how they did so with not even correct figures and even more inappropriate. But I think like the whole thing was partisan. I think the federal government's reaction of Quebec versus Ontario was similarly partisan. Uh, the whole thing was really gross in a really sad chapter that uh, I think it's good that we are seemingly behind. Yeah, absolutely. I must admit it was kind of uh, strange to be putting myself back into the mindset of, you know, that time when, you know, 
like it seemed like Doug Ford was trying to be a little bit Trumpy and then the budget came out and then they were like backtracking on everything. Like that just seems like such a bygone era now. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, one that I'm actually, uh, despite uh, the government's popularity and my um, my worries about that, uh, I'm glad we have moved past uh, a, a little bit. Uh, I, I agree with all that. Um, but I, I'm also going to say something which uh, risks being accused of being overly generous to the government twice in the same <sighs> And that is simply to note that the Auditor General specifically said that the minister received uh, information from the civil service that suggested the number was 200 million and was really closer to 81 million. So uh, this is none of this is to suggest that the conservative government or there's evidence that the conservative government purposely inflated the numbers uh but nevertheless the uh, the glee which was with which we saw lisa mcleod and other uh, members of the cabinet uh use this to try to create uh, a narrative uh that was deeply uh troubling and and to make draconian changes to policy in other area that is fully 100 percent owned by by the government and, and rightly should be um called out as many times as we can that's a very fair point. I would like to also reflect on this is the I think the first Auditor General product that has ever appeared on Ontario Loud that we haven't been like let's get out the pitchforks guys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a uh, you know, good job on this one. Sorry, yeah. can I just just one thing um not to um undermine what Alexi is saying around you know, where the public service sort of provided advice and fell short. But I do think that that is, you know, like there's only so much that the public service can can sort of estimate what the take up or what the impacts of of increased irregular border crossings would have looked like. So I'm going to come out in defense of the civil service a bit and say that, you know, that there's always this tension that the civil service can only provide advice based off of facts or data available to them at that moment in time. And materially, the difference between $80 million and $200 million for the province and it's the size of its budget um to me doesn't really justify i think it's less of it doesn't a i think we all agree it doesn't justify uh the government's sort of narrative around this but also i think it unfairly expects a perfection a level of perfection from the civil service and i'm not saying that we're expecting that but the way that the auditor frames this expects a level of perfection from the civil service that is just not possible and it's not possible in a number of different policy areas so yeah i just i think that it's important to keep in mind around what the role of the civil service is and what they can or cannot do that's a great point grima and i mean all four of us are former ontario public servants so i think we all um yeah we all have experienced that and certainly i would uh, be among the first to criticize this auditor general for uh unreasonable uh, reports that inflate and do not provide the adequate context that's necessary to truly understand the difficulties of the situations that government is in. Uh, so 100% agree. I'm really glad that we got two important things uh, into the end of this episode. Number one, a bit of a you know slight criticism on the Auditor General. That's very important to me. And also <laughs> undermining a thing Alexi said. That's also very important to me. Um, so that is all for today's episode, uh, friends. Um, I... Thank you for joining us. 
Uh, don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe Ontario Loud on your podcast app. Uh, share us across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, get at us on Twitter at, at Ontario Loud or email us at or email us at ontarioloudmail@gmail.com. We will get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. Also, send us your questions. Ontario Loud is Grumatawa Kapoor, Alexi White, Sam Andrew. Alvin Tejo and me, Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers and Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundy. Thank you. Uh, one last thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or OntarioLoud.ca. Hit that Patreon link. Thanks for listening. <laughs>